0: So this evening's passage is taken from Hebrews, chapter three, verses seven to 19. So, as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 years they saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness." We have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original conviction firmly to the very end. As has just been said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion. Who were they who heard and rebelled? Were they not all those Moses led out of Egypt? And with whom was he he angry for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies perished in the wilderness? And to whom did God swear that they would never enter his rest, if not to those who disobeyed? So we see that they were not able to enter because of their unbelief. Well, good evening again. So this evening we're
1: going to be um, spending time in God's word And uh, the theme for us today is greater perseverance, greater perseverance. Now, I think it's true to say that things aren't always what they seem. And the truth is, in life, we can often think we're on more solid ground than we actually are. A few years ago, when uh, my oldest children were much younger, I've got twins who are 17, and they came to their first Keswick convention as eight-month-old babies. So they've been here many times. But um, when they were about four or five years old, um, I began what I called our sort of apologetics journey as a family. And I encouraged them to ask questions. And one evening, I was putting them to bed, and it was getting near to Christmas and one of my sons asked me about father christmas and so i thought great this is an opportunity to explain the meaning of christmas is the incarnation of god in the historical person of jesus And to get the focus of my children on the real meaning of Christmas. So we had this long explanation. And then I explained. And Father Christmas was a person who did actually live. He lived in a city that used to be called Constantinople. It's in modern day Turkey. And he was an early follower of Jesus. And he loved Jesus so much that um, when there were poor children in the build up to Christmas, he gave them gifts. And he was called St. Nicholas and that became Santa Claus and that is who Father Christmas was. I came down and high-fived my husband. I said, it's sorted, the kids understand Christmas, we're all good. A few days later, I was on a mission trip, a ministry trip, uh, away from home for a couple of nights. And I got a call from my husband. The most terrible thing has happened. I've been summoned to come into the school. You know what's coming? The headmistress of the junior school, whose name was Mrs. Terror, who struck terror into the hearts of all parents, called him into her office and gave him the most drastic dressing down. Your child has done the most terrible thing. There are children in the corridors in floods of tears crying. My husband said, what's happened? He said, she said, I don't understand what's happened, but your son is telling the whole school Father Christmas is dead. <laughs> we can think we're on more solid ground than we actually are. I thought my apologetic skills with my kids were a lot stronger than they actually were. In tonight's passage, difficult things, difficult themes are explored. Not entering God's rest. Experiencing doubt and unbelief and loss. And I want to begin by acknowledging that this may make some of us in this room worry. And it might make some of us doubt. Now the thing about worry is that we're not meant to do it. Jesus is clear. Don't worry. Don't worry. Don't have fear. But I think this passage, and passages like it in the New Testament, tell us that it is okay and also healthy to question, and sometimes even to doubt. It can be healthy to allow ourselves to be uncomfortable, And to ask ourselves what we really believe, our passage this evening does exactly that. Thanks, James, for the choice. Tim Keller wrote this. He said, a faith without some doubts is like a human body without any antibodies in it. People who blithely go through life too busy or too indifferent to ask hard questions about why they believe as they do will find themselves defenseless against either the experience of tragedy or the probing questions of the smart skeptic. A person's faith can collapse almost overnight if she's failed over the years to listen patiently to her own doubts, which should only be discarded after long reflection. So, as we explore this passage this evening and we encourage each other to persevere, I want to begin by saying we're okay to be honest. We're invited to be honest. Now, in Hebrews, the context for our passage is really important. As you know, it doesn't just pop up unconnected from what went before. And um, you've been doing the series up until now, but you'll know that at the beginning of chapter 3, verses 1 to 6, it comes just before our passage, the great theme is that Jesus is greater than Moses. And Jesus Christ in these six verses is greater than Moses in two ways. In verse three, Jesus is greater than Moses in the same way that a builder of a house is greater than the house he built. In other words, Jesus is greater than Moses because he made Moses. And verse four makes that implication clear. God is the maker of all things. And by implication, Jesus Christ is God. And then the second way that Jesus is greater than Moses comes in verses five and six. He's greater than Moses in the way that the son of the house is greater than the servant in the house because the son is the heir of the house. He owns the house. He provides for it. And Christ is the creator of all and the heir of all. He's made all things, including the people which Moses is a part of, and he is heir of all things, including the house of which Moses is the servant. And then right at the end of verse six, before we pick up our passage, the writer says that the readers, the listeners to this letter are the very house of God. So the house that the son has made, the house that the son inherits is us, is the readers of of this book of Hebrews, if indeed... We hold firmly to our confidence and the, and the hope which is our glory. So that's what comes before. And it's important because in verse 14, as we go on into the passage, we have a very important if statement, which is a lot like the statement made in verse 6. We've come to share in Christ if indeed we hold on to our original conviction firmly until the end if we hold our assurance to the end. The effect of this condition relates to the past. So we've come to share in Christ, or as some translations put it, we have become partakers of Christ. So the point here is hold fast onto your assurance but not in order to become a future partaker of Christ. The point is, hold fast to your assurance in order to show, to evidence, to demonstrate that you are a partaker of Christ. We've come to share in or become partakers of Christ if we hold fast our assurance to the end. So if we don't hold fast our assurance to the end... This doesn't mean Christ wasn't strong enough to save us. It doesn't mean we didn't put enough effort in, guys. It means we had not become a partaker of Christ. Not holding fast to our assurance is not on us. It shows that we were not truly in Christ. Our confidence, in other words, is not in ourselves. It is in Christ, who's even greater than Moses. The great salvation is is rooted in the great saviour. And so this theme throughout Hebrews is consider Jesus. Look to Jesus. So that's a little bit of introduction. And then we come on to what we've just heard read. Hebrews chapter 3 verses 7 to 19. And I want to make three points this evening. And the first is that this is a warning from the past. The writer's main approach in these verses is to offer in love a serious warning to people on the basis of how God has worked in the past. And specifically in how God worked with the people of Israel as they came out of Egypt, And then in spite of all that power and mercy which was operating on their behalf, they tested God with grumbling and unbelief. And so the result was that he gave them over to that decision to die in the wilderness and swore that they would not enter God's rest. In that case, the promised land. So the point is that the people of Israel are meant to be an example to us, the readers, They've been treated with great mercy by God. God's brought them out of Egypt. They've seen signs and wonders. And and they've tasted the powers of the age to come, says chapter 6, verse 5. And the Holy Spirit has been at work in their midst. And they've participated in, in the very power of God. They're seemingly confident in God, but it doesn't last. So this is an example from the past of a warning. The writer to the Hebrews wants Christians to last, to persevere because that demonstrates the power and reality of Christ's salvation. So he's saying to the people reading this, look at Israel, look at this example from the wilderness and don't be like them. Verse 8, don't harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the wilderness where your ancestors tested and tried me, though for 40 40 years they saw what I did. In other words, people who've seen God's gracious works, have seen signs and wonders, have seen miracles of mercy, have tasted the heavenly gift, but instead of being softened, to trust God when the day of trial comes, when things become difficult, they actually become hard and unbelieving and don't trust God's goodness. R. Kent Hughes says this it all began so well but ended so poorly. Of the 600,000 men, million plus Israelites who began so well, only two over the age of 20, ever got to the promised land. And that was 40 years later. The rest fell, disappointed corpses in the desert. The grand and terrible lesson of Israel's history is that it is possible to begin well and end poorly. In fact, this tragic human tendency dominates much human spiritual experience. So the point of this is what will happen to us if remember the big if of verse 6 and of verse 14. If we harden our hearts in the day of trial and murmur against him, we throw away that confidence and hope in God. So I want to ask you some hard questions this evening. Are you on the brink of giving up? Has there been church hurt the crushing disappointment of a vision or hope unfulfilled in your life? Has the failure or abuse of a Christian leader caused you to be disheartened? Are you in financial trouble causing you to harden your heart? Don't let the wilderness rob you of Jesus. That's the warning. Don't let the wilderness experiences, the wilderness years, rob you of Jesus' love and presence and grace and power and beauty. Wilderness can be hard. Let me share a story of a woman who will call Lady B. Some colleagues in my church lead something called the Discover Network, a global network of micro-churches planted through Bible studies. And they shared um, about one of their leaders called Lady B. This lady um, fled the conflict um, of IS-held territory where she lived and ended up in a refugee camp near Iraq. Whilst she was in the camp... She became a follower of Jesus, as has happened to many people in the camps right now. But this lady's husband found out, and he told her that because of the religion he follows, he would need to now kill her. But he found that because he loved her so much, he couldn't do it himself. And so he began to seek help. And during his search for help, he discovered Jesus himself. And this couple then began to discover Bible studies with other people in the refugee camp. And one whole family in particular came to faith in Jesus. But the camp authorities heard what was happening and they realized they had a problem. And Lady B and her husband were deported back to where they had fled from. Lady B kept in touch and eventually decided that she needed to risk her life to return to visit the new believers that she had been working with. And when she arrived, she found that they had baptized three entire families. Today, Lady B received an Arabic audio Bible with much joy. Through suffering and disappointment, through wilderness, through threat of death, she and her husband persevered. The story of Israel is an example for the church. Don't treat the grace of God with contempt. Don't presume to receive it as an escape from Egypt and misery, but not press in, not be actual partakers of Christ who, who prove that, who show that, who demonstrate that through perseverance. So firstly, in this passage, there's a warning from the past that helps us to think about the value of perseverance. Secondly, the theme that we see is that we need help. We need help. 50 years ago, evangelicals in Germany formed what would become known as the Confessing Church. They opposed, actually much longer than 50 years ago, they opposed the the, the German Christian Church movement, which was sponsored by the Nazis between 1933 and 1945, and the Confessing Church was forced underground. In 1935, the Confessing Church had formed a preacher's seminary near Zinkst on the Baltic Sea. The principal and main teacher of the 25 students was a man called Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a 29-year-old pastor and university professor from Berlin. My paternal grandfather um, went to table talk at the Bonhoeffer house, evangelistic table talk, when he was a, a student of science at university. Bonhoeffer led students in in a a life of discipleship together including daily prayers and meditation and worship and he gathered these seminarians and they they, uh, worked and lived together and in 1937 the seminary was closed by the Nazis and in November they were put under arrest and that year Bonhoeffer published a book called The Cost of Discipleship. I'm sure many in this room have read it. And in 1938, he wrote a book called Life Together. In that book, he explores how to be Christians in community when you're living your life on the brink of great danger and terror. I'm sure many of you know that in 1943, he participated on the plot on Hitler's life and he was arrested put in a concentration camp and hanged in 1945, just weeks before the liberation of Germany at the age of 39. In Life Together, Bonhoeffer wrote this, the physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. God has put his word into the mouth of men in order that it might be communicated to other men. When one person is struck by the word, he speaks it to others. God has willed that we should seek and find his living word in the witness of a brother, in the mouth of a person. And therefore, the Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. And he needs him again and again. When he becomes uncertain and discouraged, for by himself, he can't help himself without belying the truth. Now the writer of Hebrews in verses 12 to 13 says something a bit like this. He says that we're encouraged to minister to each other. He says, see to it brothers and sisters that none of you has a sinful unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily as long as it is called today. In other words, we need to look out for each other in order that each other don't turn away. We need to follow each other up. We need to see to it that our brothers and sisters don't have an unbelieving heart. When I was at university in the 1990s, I had a friend in my college who, in the first year, came to Christian Union and church. But in our second year, he lived with his rugby teammates and he started getting drunk a lot and he stopped coming to church. And one evening, um, I got into a conversation with him and I asked him, What's happened to you? And I, I was quite judgmental back then. I, I sort of gave him a bit of a telling off. And then I, I did try and say, You know, God loves you. Come back. And he agreed that I could knock on his door on a Sunday morning, wake him up, and drag him to church. And it just so happened that the next day was Sunday. So it was 10.15, and church started at 10.30, so I knocked on his door. Overnight, um, due to the alcohol, he'd completely forgotten the conversation. So when I woke him up and said, it's time for church, he at first looked a bit shocked, and then he said, you're right you're right. He burst into tears and he agreed all over again to come back to God. A few years later, he thanked me for being a very judgmental 18-year-old and for being a complete pain. <laughs> Encourage one another. That See to it that none of you has a sinful and unbelieving heart. Encourage one another daily. When I went through a very difficult time, In 2020 and 2021, with the fall of a Christian leader that I had worked for, when his very serious abuse was uncovered, I was devastated, disappointed, shaken to the core of my being. And a dear older Christian and his wife came alongside me. And they gave me time, they sat me down and did Bible studies with me exploring how this could have happened from a biblical perspective they coped with my tears and my doubts and my profound discouragement and they journeyed with me we all need to offer and receive encouragement the writer of hebrews says See to it that none of you has unbelieving hearts. And I want to say this evening that I don't think this can be outsourced to the pastor. And it can't be outsourced to a system. There are simply too many of us who might be discouraged. The letter is saying we need to do this for each other. And we need to do this daily. Encourage one another daily so that none of you may be hardened by sins, deceitfulness, deceitfulness. The expectation is that we're going to need daily encouragement from other believers so our hearts don't become hardened by the things of this world, whether that's chasing wealth or ambition, or whether our hearts become hardened through the sheer disappointment of church hurt or failures of leaders. We need encouragement desperately, and we need it daily. Dear friend, of mine um, lives and works in the Middle East. He's uh, an Arab evangelist, and he has an extraordinary ministry both in person and online. And that means that he lives under a huge um, threat, frankly, for his life on a daily basis. And a few years ago, um, just as the, the refugee crisis was really kicking off in Europe, he was invited to come and speak to people fleeing IS. in in Europe, and he flew into a major uh, European city. And it was shortly after the event had happened, the the murder had happened of the journalist at the Saudi embassy, and as he he touched down in the cities, switched his phone on, and he got a message summoning him to the embassy of his nation in that country he was really afraid. And he texted various people and got people praying, but he thought this, this really might be the end. You know, he's got hundreds of thousands of views on his evangelistic videos. They've probably cottoned on to why I'm here. So he goes and presents himself at the embassy. And he walks in and you, he's sort of in the front area and it seems okay. And they, they see his name and they say, no, no, you need to come further in. And then he's taken upstairs and his heart is really beating. And then he's taken into a room and left alone in a room and the door is closed and he's just very, very frightened. Into the room walks a veiled woman and she begins to speak to him. She, prob- she says, you're probably wondering why you've been summoned here. And with beads of sweat on his forehead, he thinks, I think I, I know why. And, and she says, no, I don't think you do know why. She says, a while ago, I saw one of your videos on YouTube. And that caused me to watch the next videos on YouTube. And through the message you preached, I made a decision to follow Jesus. I've become a follower of Jesus. He began to relax a little bit at this moment. She said, the thing is that I don't know anyone else who's a follower of Jesus. And I'm fairly senior in the government, so I set up an alert on your passport." if you ever flew into a country where I was, you'd be brought to me. She said, could could you pray for me? Could we read the Bible together? So they had a few moments of glorious Bible study and fellowship. She knew, as a follower of Jesus, I need encouragement. I need to meet another Christian. So we have the warning. Now we have the expectation of needing help to persevere. And now thirdly and finally, we see that belief is an issue of the heart. The issue of perseverance is not first and foremost an issue of behavior. For some of us who um, have a tendency towards a works orientation, we hear a passage tonight And we like like we've heard tonight, and we think, I don't want to be someone who doesn't enter God's rest. And perhaps we begin to feel fear. And a natural human tendency is to think, what can I do? What do I need to put in place so that I can escape judgment? And the issue in this text is one of the heart. It's a matter of believing and trusting and hoping in God let's look at verse 10 together. Therefore, I was angry with this generation. And I said, they always go astray in their heart. Why didn't the people get to enter the promised land? You could see they sinned, they rebelled, they murmured, yes. But this is how the writer ends the chapter, verse 19. And so we see they were not able to enter because of unbelief. Persistent sin in the face of God's mercy is a sign, an outworking of unbelief of hard-heartedness. So yes, the people were embittered because of God's testing them. Yes, they sinned, but underneath it all was the root problem that they just didn't believe God. They didn't trust his goodness. They just didn't believe him. And their hearts became hardened by unbelief story is told of a magician. He was working on a cruise ship. And um, he, was, he was employed to do the sort of entertainment, you know, the dreaded entertainment in something like this. And he, he, uh, he, he did it, a set, the same set, week after week, because the guests, the passengers on the ship changed. So he just repeated it week after week after week. And the only problem was that the captain's parrot began to work out what was happening. <laughs> So halfway through the set, the parrot would shout, "Hey, why is every card the Ace of Spades? And why have you got a bunny rabbit up your up your sleeve?" And it forced the magician to have to do some work and come up with some new um, some new items. Then one day the ship ran into trouble. This isn't a true story. Don't worry. And um, the ship sank. And the magician found himself floating on a piece of wood in the Caribbean Sea, alone, apart from the parrot. They stared at each other with total hatred for three days and neither spoke a word. And it was the parrot who first broke the silence and said, Okay, I give up. What did you do with the ship? (laughs) We can have a tendency to view belief in God and certainly in the culture around us. There's a strong narrative that belief in God is a fantasy, it's an illusion. It's a trick. Perhaps even some of us here this evening have wondered have I been tricked? Have I been deceived? God is not a fantasy. The God of the Bible is not an illusionist, God is real. And he has revealed himself in concrete and verifiable and tangible and evidenced ways in this world. You'll remember how this letter begins. God can be trusted. And this is the great passion of the writer here. He's saying, God is real and he can be trusted. Don't lose out through unbelief. God is not a fantasy. You haven't been deceived. And, and the people of Israel, even though they'd seen the waters of the Red Sea divide, even though they'd walked on dry ground, the moment they got thirsty, the moment they got hungry, their hearts were hard and they didn't trust, they didn't believe. And that is what this book and this particular section is written to prevent. How many profess Christ make a start with God, hear that our sins can be forgiven, that we can escape eternal judgment and go to heaven. How many sign up in that first flush of joy, saying, I believe. But then a week, a month, a year, 10 years, 20 years passes, and the tests come. Perhaps the tests and trials and disappointments build up. And a subtle craving for the fleeting pleasures of this world begins to develop. The writer of Numbers puts it like this. This is how the people in the wilderness articulated it. We remember the fish we used to eat in Egypt, the cucumbers and the melons and the leeks, and the onions, and the garlic, and now there's nothing to look at but manna. Perhaps we begin, as we doubt and experience disappointment, we begin to crave for the comforts and pleasures and delights of this world. And this passage is an encouragement to us, not to let our hearts be hardened, to turn to Jesus. The answer to that hunger is him. The answer is belief and trust in him. Don't harden your heart to him. Wake up again to his love, his presence his power. Think about how um, Jesus, how we, we're called, and you, I know you've heard of messages on this this week, called to consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest. And let your heart be warmed by him again today. Ask him, invite him to soften your heart, to refresh that love for him. The writer to the Hebrews Thinks perseverance is a heart issue. Wanting a soft heart and not a hard heart is a good starting point so that we might look forward to entering his rest with confidence. So, in the passage, we see the warning from the past, we hear of our, help, our need for help and encouragement. Let's offer it and receive it. And we hear afresh a call to believe again, to have soft hearts, to resist the hardening of the wilderness, and to resist the hardening that comes from longing after the fleeting pleasures of this world, and instead to look to Jesus. That's how we persevere. That's how we put our trust in him. Why don't I pray? Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is good and beautiful and true, even when it's hard and even when we need to hear a warning. And we thank you that you are here by your spirit. And we invite you to soften hard hearts in this place. We invite you to tend to wounded hearts where there's great disappointment. We invite you to, to stir that love for you and that belief in you again. Our confidence is in you, not in ourselves. And so we ask you to move in our midst this evening. In Jesus' name, amen.